For our prayer before the sermon this morning, I invite you to open your hymnal to number 349. Number 349. And we're going to sing this through twice. Daryl will lead us. The first time we'll sing, Fall Afresh on Me. And then the second time we'll sing, Fall Afresh on Us. And we invite all of us, as we sing that second time, to just visualize all the churches here in Lancaster City, all the churches in our denomination, all the churches on Pentecost morning the world around. Daryl will now lead us. Amen. I once heard a strange story on the radio about a woman out in Oregon who went in for some dental surgery. And to her great surprise, when she came home afterward, she not only had an aching mouth, and she had one of those, but she also had a brand new Irish accent though she'd never been to Ireland. Now, her dentist assured her that when the swelling went down, her accent would go away. But lo and behold, the swelling did indeed go down, but the accent remained. And eventually, she was diagnosed with a very rare condition called foreign accent syndrome. 
caused, and this is serious, <laughs> kind of, by a mysterious injury to the part of the brain that controls speech. And if you go home today and Google foreign accent syndrome, you'll find some fascinating stories the world around about this very phenomenon. Now, isn't it fascinating to contemplate whether at Pentecost it was perhaps this very particular part of their brains that the Holy Spirit was touching and activating that morning? making them suddenly not just have foreign accents, but suddenly fluent in other languages, the languages of the whole Roman Empire around. And whenever I think about this, I find myself wishing that the Holy Spirit had touched that part of my brain before I spent years and years and years studying and learning Chinese. So friends, what would a YouTube video of Pentecost look like? As a heavenly wind surges through the 120 followers of Jesus, I imagine blurry images of startled faces with raised eyebrows, eyes wide open, and mouths agape. What is happening? I imagine people in shocked silence suddenly giving way to exuberant voices. Then another one. Then a whole polyglot cacophony of foreign languages. I imagine people at first frozen in fear suddenly erupting in a blur of motion, waving their arms and suddenly dancing. And since... It's only 9 a.m. No wonder some folks in Jerusalem conclude that the followers of Jesus have gotten an early start on happy hour. Within the Trinity of God, the Holy Spirit is the midwife who brings to birth new things. At the birth of our universe, God's spirit hovers over the face of the waters. Remember that? In Hebrew, the word for spirit is ruach. It's a feminine word that means breath or wind. And at Pentecost, the Holy Spirit hovers again, this time over Jerusalem, and brings to life the church. She transforms the once terrified disciples into a new community that is now equipped and energized to go to the ends of the earth to welcome all people of every race and class and orientation into the family of God. In reading our two scriptures for today, I kept noticing something. 
how the Holy Spirit does something that we often seem, we often assume is quite in conflict or even contradictory. On the one hand, we see the Holy Spirit bringing incredible diversity to the early church. Many languages, many peoples, many cultures, many, 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 many diversity. But on the other hand, we see the Holy Spirit also working tirelessly to maintain the church's oneness, its unity. One body, one faith, one baptism, one Lord in Jesus Christ. Profound diversity and profound unity. How can that be? But friends, aren't diversity and unity two of the central characteristics of the God whom we worship? Think about it. Isn't God a diverse community of three? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, or Creator, Redeemer, and Sustainer? And yet, an eternal unity of one? What if, just what if, diversity and unity in the church are not contradictory, but actually complementary and even synergistic? In other words, where the whole is greater than the sum of the parts. And with all the tumult in our Mennonite family these days, doesn't it seem like an especially fitting time to reflect together on diversity and unity this morning? So let's do that. Let's focus first on diversity. It is God's passionate desire that all people, all people, should come to know and experience God's saving and healing love for them in Jesus Christ. In Acts 2.17, we hear, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Not some, all flesh. So that everyone, so that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. There is no one. Absolutely no one who is outside the circle of God's loving concern. And after Pentecost, we see the Holy Spirit working tirelessly to tear down all the dividing walls that once kept Gentiles outside of the family of God. In Acts 10, we see a beautiful example of this after Peter sees the Holy Spirit fall upon the Roman Cornelius and all of his Gentile friends. Peter asks, kind of throws up his hands and said, can anyone withhold baptism from these Gentiles who've already received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And the answer is, no, you can't. And in the following years, 
The Holy Spirit then actually guides the early church to do something quite amazing. To set aside key parts of Hebrew scripture. To set aside key parts of Hebrew scripture on circumcision, on food, and on ethnic purity. And then to raise up other parts of the Hebrew Bible, like God's special concern for outsiders and exiles and strangers, so that Christ can be shared and experienced by all people. Down with the walls. And in the following decades, these changes allow the Christian faith to spread like wildfire around the whole perimeter of the Mediterranean to every end, every place in the Roman Empire. And the early diversity of the church, of Jews and Gentiles, men and women, slaves and free, all worshiping together and all sharing their resources with each other is perhaps the most scandalous and attractive witness of the early church to the world around them. It's a scandal and it's riveting. These folks just don't belong together. And yet here they are, breaking bread, washing each other's feet, and helping the whole world catch a beautiful glimpse of the kingdom of God, God's beloved community of reconciled enemies. Reconciled enemies by the power of the Holy Spirit. So now let's turn to unity. In John 17, 11, Jesus prays, Holy Father, protect my followers. Oh, how we need that protection. That they may be one as we are one. The church is called to reflect the loving unity of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And in Corinthians 12 today, Paul calls on the early church in Corinth to maintain, work hard for this unity, even in the midst of its incredible diversity. Verse 13, we were all baptized into one body. Jews and Greeks, slaves and free, we were all made to drink of one spirit. You notice that the all are to be one. And what's surprising here, so very surprising, is that Paul is speaking to an incredibly cantankerous and divided and polarized congregation in Corinth. In chapter 1, we hear that there are factions. 
formed between different leaders. Some belonged to Paul, some belonged to Cephas, some belonged to Apollos. Chapter 11, some in Corinth are wealthy and they're getting a head start on the wine. Paul says, you're even getting drunk. And they're sharing all of this before the poorer members of the congregation show up so that they can share the Lord's Supper together. What a scandal. And in chapter 8, we learn that this congregation is also divided about something else. Quite a bunch of folks, aren't they? They're divided over the question of whether or not it is permissible to eat food offered to idols. So allow me this morning to paraphrase Paul and to paraphrase his answer to them. I urge you, dear Corinthians, to keep on maintaining the Spirit's unity even as I recognize that each of you seeking to be faithful to God will come out in different places on this food issue. In fact, your most crucial witness to the world around you is not that you agree on everything. You never will. But how you continue to love each other, especially when you disagree. That's your most powerful witness to the world. How you keep on loving each other when you disagree. And I've written the very next part of my letter, by the way, dear church in Corinth, chapter 13. Without love, we're all just a bunch of noisy gongs and clanging cymbals. I didn't write that for weddings. Although it's very good in weddings. I wrote that for you, the church in Corinth. Love and love and love. And then in verse 12, Paul says that we, they need to be one because the body of Christ is one. And notice here that this is where we get our word member. A word which we explored quite a bit at our new members retreat yesterday at our home. Notice here that member does not mean someone in a church who can vote. The original meaning does not mean someone who is on our church rolls. A member means a limb, an organ, a finger, organically connected to the body of Christ. That's what it means. A big toe never asks, should I stay or should I go? What happens when a big toe is separated from the body? There will be trouble. It dies. It dies. 
And just as importantly, what happens if the body loses a big toe? Completely loses its sense of balance. In verses 8 to 10, we learn one more crucial thing. The Holy Spirit's gifts to the church not only allow us to speak, but also to listen well to each other. Did you notice that? Some of these gifts are for speaking, speaking wisdom, speaking knowledge, speaking prophecy, but others are for listening. Who has these gifts in our congregation? The gift of discernment of spirits. The gift of interpretation of tongues and prophecy. In verse 6, Paul says that everyone, everyone is given spiritual gifts by the Holy Spirit for the unity and the common good of the whole body. And in Greek, I think this is so beautiful, in Greek, the word for common good is symphoron, from which we get symphony. Friends, I hope it's now becoming clear that the opposite of unity is not diversity, but rather a divisiveness that tears apart the body of Christ. And the opposite of diversity is not unity, but rather a uniformity that makes the body of Christ bland, uninviting, and unattractive. And I wonder, I just wonder, if our four-part singing can maybe help us to wrap our minds around diversity and unity in a way that we see these things not as contradictory but complementary. In a moment, we're going to be singing Praise God from Whom All Blessings Flow. And I want to ask you, do you think we'd still be singing this hymn 50 years later? First in the red hymnal and then in the blue one and who knows what the next one's going to be, what color. But do you think we'd be still singing this beloved hymn if it was only in one part? I doubt it. It's the diversity of the parts, the symphony of the sopranos carrying the melody the altos descending, the tenors soaring, the basses rumbling. That makes it such a joy to sing and to hear. Just ask Garrison Keillor, right? But notice as we sing today that there will be a great unity in the midst of our diversity. We're all singing the same words. We're all singing the same tempo and in the same key. 
We hope, Daryl. We'll all be breathing together and carefully listening to each other just as the church, guided by the Holy Spirit, seeks always to be in tune with Christ. Imagine the absurdity of a tenor asking a bass, why aren't you singing like me? Or a soprano saying to an alto, how come you're not singing the melody? The key question in the church must never be, why aren't you singing like me? The key question is always, are we in tune with Jesus? Are we in tune with Jesus? And dear friends, with the Holy Spirit's constant help, may the diversity and unity of our congregation more deeply reflect the symphony of God's character. who is a diverse community of three and yet an eternal unity of one. Amen.